Father, we are grateful for all of your blessings. We're grateful for your word. Teach us through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I don't have to tell you that uh, we live in difficult economic times. I suspect that some of you have lost some funds through the volatility of the stock market. Our institutions here in town uh, feel a certain amount of, of uh, handcuffing because of the economic downturn. Our county, our state, our nation is being forced to make some difficult decisions about services and taxes and a lot of things that impact our lives because of the economic difficulties that we're living in. And I suspect that all of us, in some way or another, have had to rethink the way we spend, have had to rethink uh, just some of the things that we do. But our concern about the economy is not just how do we figure out how to live in it. The concern about the economy is that it can tempt us to live with a spirit of anxiety, if not fear, about the future. We worry about economics, and with good reason, but sometimes worry about money turns into an unhealthy spirit about money. And that's something God is always concerned about. He always has been. The chronicler writes this account to the Jews in 5th century um, Israel as as God has sent them back to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple and to reestablish themselves as God's people in that place. And they begin the work, but they face all kinds of opposition. And one of the oppositions that they face is a lack of resources. And instead of pressing forward, they are stalling, slowing down, quitting. And the result is they're not, they're not obeying the command of God to go back to Israel and to do this work. And the chronicler's solution is to take them back a few hundred years to the time of David and his building of the temple. Now, we've been talking through this as through the book of of 1 Chronicles throughout the last few weeks. And these objects have reminded us about a couple of important elements of this book. The central element is that God is the king. And this chair represents God's throne. And the other element is, what does it mean to be citizens of the kingdom? And these objects are hopefully are ways that remind us of some of those ideas, some of those principles that the tree reminds us as in the genealogy that we are all connected as children of God throughout time and around the world. And the heart reminds us that citizens of the kingdom live with their hearts turned to God even when we fail. And the cape tells us that People who are citizens of the kingdom and who are engaged with God can do heroic things that we would have never otherwise thought possible. 
the hard hat with the balloon on it. It reminds us that when we come to worship of the almighty God, of the king, it is an awesome thing to be in his presence, but it's also joy and celebration. And the prison balls remind us that as we go out from worship, we go out to shine the light, the vivid colors of who God is and what God has done in our lives with our world that needs him. The climbing harness is a sign to us that that citizens of the kingdom are continually being asked to, to scale new heights with God, but that he is always there to support us and to help us. And the, um, the hand that, that came off uh, the old church is a reminder that when, when pride creeps into our lives and we're tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we think of God, the solution is to give God the glory and to live our lives with him at the focus. And the movie Clapboard is a reminder that in the kingdom, all of us work together like the credits rolling at the end of a movie. And we're all needed, all of our individual parts, to accomplish what God has called us to do and to be. And this baton we talked about last week is running a race, in a relay race, and handing off to the person coming after us. And the legacy that we want to create, leaving for those who come behind us a life that attempted great things for God in the power and in the grace and in the spirit of Christ. And now today we come to this last chapter of 1 Chronicles. And as the events of this chapter unfold, David is finishing up the preparations for the temple. He's already gotten the people assigned to the tasks they're going to do, and he's accumulated most of the resources they're going to need to to build the temple. And now he's putting together the financial package for all the rest that's going to need to happen. And he starts with his own contribution. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, mean, even if you, you know, there are people who say, well, you can't really trust the numbers of the Old Testament. They're sometimes exaggerated or that we don't really understand the numbers. Even if you take that into consideration, what David gives is in the millions of our dollars now. Gold, silver, all of this, all these resources that David gives this gold that he gives is from Ophir. It's the, considered the purest and the finest in all the world. And he lays all this stuff at the temple. And then he turns to the people and he says, Now, what are you going to give? Don't you hate those kinds of questions? That's a pretty personal thing to ask, isn't it? You know, we could stand up here and I'd say, All right, here's what I'm going to do. Now, I want you to stand and tell us what you're going to do. You might clear the room pretty quickly with that one. It's a penetrating question. It's a very personal question, but it's an important question. And it's not a question that is related to how much or how little we have. It doesn't matter how much what our salary is or what our bank accounts look like or how much we have in a portfolio. It is a spiritual question. In fact, it's a question that is just as spiritual as the question we often ask and we see in the scriptures What must I do to be saved? It's a question that's central to what it means to acknowledge that God is king of all and to understand what it means to be citizens of his eternal kingdom. 
And it's a question that implies both willingness to give and generosity in giving. And both issues are really more sacred than they are fiscal. Generosity is always an indication of our spiritual health because generosity is always an issue of willingness. You can't be forced to be generous. You might be able to force someone to give or to contribute or to do something that appears to be generous, but generosity is something completely different. It's an act of the will and the heart. We choose generosity, which is why this word, why the word willingly is used five times in this chapter. Willingness plastered all over our faith. No one's in a right relationship with God because they are forced or coerced to be. It's a decision of our will. I think that's why Jesus allows the rich young ruler to walk away from him when, because he feels like the demands are too much. And Jesus lets him go. I think this is at the heart of, the, of God's plan for saving the world. It's not that he forces Christ upon us, but rather he sends Christ to die. And then he lets us respond to this mind-boggling act of love. In verse 17, David acknowledges, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you're pleased with integrity. All these things I've given willingly and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their heart loyal to you. David is connecting loyalty to God with willing generosity. I think David is saying that it's willing generosity that proves our loyalty to God. You think of the Pharisees who obey the law, but they're not generous. And we know what Jesus has to say about them. I know that that we like to think faith is the only indisputable characteristic of kingdom citizens. But I think generosity is also an indisputable characteristic of kingdom citizens. Generosity isn't about how much we give. It's about being willing to give whatever we have. Now, you compare it with David... You think about the 5th century Jews. I mean, they virtually have nothing in comparison to David. And honestly, we don't have all that much compared to David. But that's not the point. The point is willing generosity, which is an issue of the heart. Of integrity. Loyalty to God. Now, when David opens the door for them to give, it's interesting to me the way he phrases that. I would think he would say, okay, here's what I'm going to give. Now, what are you going to give? What are you going to do? But he doesn't. Verse 5 says, now, who among you is willing to consecrate yourself to the Lord today? And then they just, they give. It seems a strange way to ask for contributions. He's not saying, he's not asking them at all for, for them to give. He's just saying, you're going to consecrate yourselves to God. And David understands that when you consecrate, when you dedicate yourself to God, when you devote yourself to God, you're generous. Generosity is always much more a question of spiritual health than fiscal health. And if we want a pretty good indication of our spiritual health, ask yourself, how willing am I to give what I have to God? How willing am I?
It's an important question because in these difficult economic times, our natural inclination is to keep and to protect and to guard what we have. But God wants us to think unnaturally. And God wants to take us into something deeper than what we can just do naturally. Into, take us into deeper experiences of freedom and of joy, which is the natural result of willing generosity. Because willing generosity is an issue of spiritual health, it always leads us to joy. In the midst of this call for contributions, verses 9, 17, 22, all speak about the joy of the people, even though all they've done is give. Not one stone has been set in place yet. And they're having these big celebrations. And they're excited. And and they're filled with joy. Why? Because they gave. Because people have been generous. Because they believe... There's a reason to rejoice in the privilege of giving. I've been pondering that, asking myself, and I'll ask you, is it possible that maybe one reason we aren't as joyful as we could be is because we're not as generous as we could be? So often our worries are rooted in losing things, losing our pension or someone stealing our possessions or losing our income, having an accident with the car. And, and, it, and it's not that we don't care about those things. But too often, it's not just caring about them. We worry about them. We're anxious about them. We're fearful about them. And we tighten our grip on them. And the worry of hanging on to them eats us alive. And the alternative is not to stop worrying about them. The alternative is to open up our hands and release them. Instead of living to protect them, instead of living to keep what we have, we live with a sense of release about what we have. And we're, we may grieve when they disappear, and that's very natural and understandable. But we don't have to live in a state of worry about them disappearing. And when worry is removed, joy enters. I'm kind of haunted by the way Charles Dickens describes Scrooge. Do you remember that? He says he's a tight-fisted, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Tell me words can't paint pictures, right? I mean, despite all the wealth he has, he's not a joyful person. You think about Mr. Potter and It's a Wonderful Life. You know, he pretty much owns the town. And yet, when he has an opportunity to steal, what is it, $5,000, he takes it. The man doesn't have an ounce of joy in his heart anywhere. And it's not limited to people who have a lot. It's just as true of people who have far less. Joy is the natural result of generosity. And sometimes we get giving and generosity confused. They're not exactly the same. We can be forced or coerced or manipulated into giving. Generosity that brings joy is a willingness, a want to, 
a desire of our hearts. And that's what brings joy. John 12, the passage we read, gives us a clear image of, of, the, of the two ways of looking at money and possessions. Jesus comes to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. And they're having this party. And in the middle of it, Mary comes in with a, a jar of expensive perfume. And she pours it over Jesus' feet. And she, and she anoints him. And, and it, the aroma of that fills the house. And what does Judas say? Oh, this is ridiculous. She could have sold that and given it to the poor. That's a year's wages. That's a lot of money. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a good thing. What a contrast. I'll tell you this, though. It ought to frighten us just a little bit. That we're probably more confused by Mary's action than by Judas's response. I mean, we, we think, well, yeah, I mean, do you have to pour the whole bottle? I mean, you could have sold some of it. And what did that really accomplish? There are poor people. It's such, she just has such a spirit of giving to Jesus. He says, it's okay. And generosity and selfishness simply cannot coexist. And every time, uh, every time we, we think about generosity, selfishness is always right in there on us. You're going to give that up? You're, you're going to release that? Don't you need that? Don't you want that? Isn't that important to you? How could you ever give that away? And the selfishness keeps fighting us. Because selfishness, when selfishness faces generosity, it's repulsed. And we battle just like Mary and Judas, continually about which way we're going to go. And the result of that determines whether we're going to live with freedom and joy or whether whether we're going to live clutching, grasping, scraping what we can get. I just finished reading the book, The Blessed Life by Robert Morris. It's a great book. Two things came to my mind as I finished it. One is that uh, the author, Robert Morris, is an extremely joyous, happy person. And the second thing was that he has got to be one of the most generous people I have ever heard of. You you read a book like that and you think, hmm, is this really all true? Well, I discovered after reading it that he actually is a friend of Steve Adel's. Steve used to work at the academy here until this summer when he moved back to Texas and been a part of the church here for a number of years. And I contacted Steve and he affirmed exactly what I perceived from that book. And we tend to think that what makes us happy and joyful is what we can get. But life affirms what the scripture tells us again and again and again. The joy and happiness are the result of what we're willing to give. For God and his kingdom. And here's why. We can be joyful about being willingly generous with God. When we understand how absurdly generous God is with us. That's what makes the difference. Understanding God's generosity with us. Is what will open our hearts. To be willingly generous with others. Because ultimately, generosity is not about what we have or we don't have. 
Ultimately, generosity is about the condition of our heart. And the condition of our heart is always connected to our view of God. And so we'll be generous if we believe two truths. One is that all we have is from God. And the second is that God has been and will continue to be absurdly generous with us. When we begin to believe those two truths, generosity just begins to flow out of us. And David reminds the Israelites of those very two things. You know, they think back to their history. When they're getting ready to leave Egypt, they have nothing. They're slaves. Until God convinces all their Egyptian neighbors to give them everything they have. And, and all this that David brings to, to give to, to build the temple, where did he get that? It's not because he was a genius at, at business or genius at finances. It, it's the spoils of war. And David affirms over and over and over again that the only reason that Israel ever wins a battle is because God is with them. And everything David has is from God. And as you can see with all that David gives, how generous God has been with them. And when we realize that God is far more generous with us than we will ever think of being, we can begin to trust that when God directs us to give away things, when God directs us to release things, as they disappear, he's going to, he's going to be generous with us to take care of our needs. He'll supply the need that's left from our generosity. If we believe that God is absurdly generous with us, that we don't have to worry about hanging on to stuff. We can hold it lightly. We can release it. We can even give it all away if God tells us to do that. Because we know that God will be far more generous with us than we could ever be with him or anybody else. It's the character, it's the nature of God to be generous. It's what Paul tells us in the 8th chapter of Romans when he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How absurdly generous is God? He gives his son for us. The key verse of First Chronicles 29 is 14. David says, you would expect him to say, who am I, who are my people that we should receive so much from you? But he doesn't. He says, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And we know we're beginning to understand and embrace the generousness of God when we, when we think about the things we get, not as things we can keep, but as things we can give away. And we begin to live with that mindset, we know we're on the right track. That as God blesses us, as things come to us, our first reaction is no longer, how can I hang on to that? But rather, how can I release that? Lord, what do you want me to do with this? And that's not our typical mindset. But as we've been seeing over and over again, who says God's going to call us to live a life with a typical mindset? 
always moving us past it, always moving us deeper, always moving us further. You know, it's interesting to me that as the chapter draws to a close, we find that David is dead. This great king, this great king who who was God's man, this great king who brought Israel to the apex of its existence, this great king who conquered the, the lands around them and who brought peace, this king that they all looked to with such admiration, the king is dead. And when something that catastrophic happens, the natural inclination is to begin to worry about what's next. Is Solomon going to be the same as David? Is Solomon going to want more from us? Is Solomon going to be able to to lead us into as, as much prosperity as we've had? I don't know. So we better just sort of circle the wagons and hang on to things and let's see. What we forget is that David is dead, but the king is not dead. The king is still on his throne. The king is still in the heavens. The king is still absurdly generous with his people. That truth has not changed, and it will not change for them or for us. As we've been thinking about uh, these various objects, as I've been thinking today about how to, how to image this idea of generosity, it struck me that there are so many ways, so many elements of our lives in which God is calling us to be willingly generous. So that out of that generosity, we'll experience joy because we know that God is absurdly generous with us. And so I've asked a few people to help me this morning just to give us some glimpses, some images of the various elements of our lives in which God is calling us to be willingly generous. stuff represents pretty much all of our lives. Whatever we have, giving to God. You know, as we were, as I was thinking about this day and thinking about generosity, I, I want to tell you, I was struck again by, honestly, the, the spirit of generosity that I so often see in this church. I, I have experienced it many, many times in our years here. And this week, it was driven home to me once again. You know, last Sunday, we collected the Faith Promise cards. We've been collecting them this week. Our goal was $7,500. 
as of this morning, we have received in pledges and faith in these faith promise cards almost twenty five thousand dollars. It's amazing. We give thanks to God, and I want to I want to commend you on those steps of faith. But this isn't the end. Because God is continually wanting to take us deeper and deeper and deeper into newer experiences of joy and of freedom as we release whatever we have to him because we know that our God who is absurdly generous with us is always going to be there for us. So recognizing who God is And understanding where our generosity can lead us, individually and corporately. How willing are we to be generous as God calls us and leads us?